0: Hey, this is Pastor Bradley, and I want to welcome you to the Res Church Podcast. Res Church is a place where people discover life through knowing and following Jesus. And so we hope that you will be blessed by this message. You're doing well this morning. It's good to see you all. My name's Bradley. If you're new, I'm one of the pastors here at Res Church. and We're glad to have you. Let's welcome our guests this morning in person and online. If you're joining us. It's great. It's great. It's good to have you. We're going to continue in our study through the gospel of Luke. So grab your Bibles. Turn with me to Luke chapter seven. Luke chapter seven. We're going to pick up where we left off. In verse 36. Chapter 7, verse 36. Luke writes One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisees' house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city was a sinner. When she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with ointment. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, "'For she is a sinner.' "'And Jesus answering said to him, "'Simon, I have something to say to you.' "'And he answered, "'Say it, teacher. "'A certain moneylender had two debtors. "'One owed 500 denarii, "'the other owed 50. "'And when they could not pay, "'he canceled the debt of both. "'Now which one of them will love him more?' "'Simon answered, "'The one, I suppose, "'for whom he canceled the larger debt. "'And he said to him, "'You've judged rightly.' But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Father, we ask that by your spirit, you would help us to think rightly about your word, to see what's here. Be transformed by the renewing of our mind in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, it's been a couple of weeks since we've been in Luke, so I want to do just a quick review of chapter seven. All right. Uh, chapter 7 begins with a story about the centurion. A centur- think of a centurion kind of like the chief of police. He's got about a hundred soldiers or so underneath him. He's a Roman employee. He's law enforcement. And he's got a servant, a beloved servant, who is sick to the point of death. He's about to die. And he sends word to Jesus and says, will you come and touch my servant? And Jesus says, yes, I'll go. And he gets almost to the house and he sends word again and says, look, you don't even have to come in my house. I know that if you will just speak the word, my servant will be healed. And Jesus is, seems like he's blown away almost by this guy's faith. He says, I haven't seen such great faith even in Israel that this guy is... is has such confidence, trust, that he's so wholly given over to who he thinks I am and the kind of authority that I have that he believes I could just speak the word. And sure enough, Jesus speaks the word, the servant's healed, and then Jesus immediately leaves that situation and crashes a funeral. It's a widow, she's already lost her husband, and now her only son has died. This is a tragic situation for her. Jesus marches right up in the middle of the funeral and raises the guy back to life. Then John's disciples, John the Baptist, you guys remember him. Some of his disciples are following Jesus around. They see Jesus do these amazing things, and they go and report to John, who's where? In prison. John's in prison. He called Herod out, a king, for for known blatant sin. Herod throws him in jail. So John's disciples come and report to him, hey, Jesus is doing all these amazing things. And John sends them back to Jesus with a question. Are you the one? Or should we look for another? What's happening with John? Jesus says, blessed is the man who doesn't stumble, isn't offended by me. John, John knows who Jesus is. John believes, but he's stumbling because life has not turned out exactly like John thought it would. John knew he was the front runner of Messiah, but I'm sure he did not imagine that when Jesus finally came on the scene and started doing all these amazing things that he would be locked away in a prison cell, not getting to witness and enjoy it all. But that's where John is. He's stumbling over this. And Jesus answers John and then publicly affirms John in this amazing way. He says, look, I tell you, among those born of women, this is a huge statement, Among those born of women, none is greater than John. And if we just think about that biblically, that's a massive statement. He's greater than Abraham. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than Elijah. He's greater than Isaiah. Why? Because he's the front runner of Messiah. And then Jesus makes this statement, but the one who is least in the kingdom is greater than him essentially telling us that the standards of greatness, the way significance is measured in the kingdom of God, isn't the same way that it gets measured in in human terms. And when Jesus says that, some Pharisees, I'm setting the context for you, some Pharisees balk. They're like, that's ridiculous. Look at it, back up to verse 28, Luke 7. When all the people heard this, And the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers or scribes rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. And then Jesus says, to what then shall I compare the people of this generation and what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. Yet the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, he's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Jesus is essentially saying to the Pharisees, you reject me and you reject John, because when you said dance, we didn't dance. We're not dancing, neither one of us, are dancing to your tune. And here's what we know. The tension with the Pharisees has just continued to escalate. They've been furious with him. They're rejecting him. And then we come to our text today, and what happens? A Pharisee invites Jesus to dinner. This is amazing. In broad daylight. You know, this this kind of banquet, Luke mentions that Jesus reclined at table... That's a pointer that this was probably like a formal banquet. And because first century Palestinian homes didn't have front porches, front steps, and doorbells, this probably took place in a covered but open air area, and word would spread when stuff like this would happen. Word would get around town that one of the Pharisees was hosting a formal banquet, and people would come and listen to the conversation. They would stand around the house and listen in as highly respected people would debate and dialogue. So word is apparently spread that Simon, this Pharisee, has asked Jesus to dinner. And they're reclining, which is kind of strange. But what what it would have looked like is Jesus was not sitting at a table with his feet underneath the table like we do. He was laying on a couch on his side. Probably on his left elbow, with his head facing the table and his feet pointed out. This is the way Jesus and all the other guests would have been. And they're sitting around the table, they're dialoguing, and probably people have gathered around to witness and hear this conversation. You remember John chapter 3 when another Pharisee came to Jesus, Nicodemus? How did he come to Jesus? Under cover of night. Why? Jesus is highly controversial among the Pharisees. They've largely rejected him. And this guy, Simon, has invited him to dinner in broad daylight. This is shocking. It's shocking because Jesus is not... The only instance we get of Jesus eating with people is back in Luke chapter 5, and he's eating with sinners and tax collectors. And now it seems like he's sitting down to dinner at the table, lying down, with people that are already considering him to be an enemy, this is risky on Simon's part. Would you agree? He's risking his reputation. He's risking his relationship and fellowship with his colleagues. Remember, the Pharisees are—they're they're the religious and moral gatekeepers. They're among the cultural elite. They're the political power in Israel. This guy's a big deal, and he's risking a lot to invite Jesus to dinner. Why? Why would he risk this? There's a couple of clues in the text, I think. Verse 39, Simon says, If this man were a prophet, it's almost like there's a question in Simon's mind, isn't there? I know that he's skeptical, He's got questions. He's got doubts. If this man were a prophet, that question comes out of, at least maybe, prior to this, thinking, maybe this guy Jesus is a prophet. It sounds like Simon is intrigued. He's intrigued by Jesus. Look at verse 40. When Jesus says, I've got something to say to you, Simon addresses Jesus as teacher. I don't think that's disingenuous. I think he has some level of respect for Jesus as a teacher. So, intrigue, interest, respect for Jesus. You meet people that are interested in Jesus? You meet people that are intrigued? You meet people that have some level of respect for him? Yeah, Jesus, yeah. Yeah, I'm interested. Certainly want him on my side. right? Like if he's there, if he's real. I, I certainly want to be in his good. Graces. Simon's interested. He's intrigued. He's got some level of respect. So in on one sense, we ought to give Simon a little bit of credit, right? Because his interest, intrigue, and respect is at least high enough that he's willing to risk his reputation to invite Jesus over for supper. But on the other hand, He is a colossal failure as a host. Colossal, massive. There were cultural norms in first century Israel that were treated like laws of hospitality. You don't have people over for dinner and not give them water to wash their feet. You don't do that. You don't invite people over for dinner and not greet them with a kiss. That is a massive no-no. I know that doesn't sound like much to us, right? But this is a huge deal. You don't invite people over for dinner and not offer them oil, ointment, right? Kind of like when you go into a fancy bathroom and they got mouthwash and deodorant and cologne there, right? You know what I'm talking about? Like you don't offer them, not offer them something to Refresh themselves, and yet Simon does none of these things. And it's hard for me to fathom that he did, he also neglected this for his other guests. It would have been a huge faux pas if he'd have done this for everybody. So at, all we know is that at least for Jesus, he offered him no water, no kiss, and no ointment. And why is he doing that? Is he maybe trying to send Jesus a message like hey i invited you to dinner but let's not take this too far you're welcome but we're going to see how this goes before i treat you like an honored guest is he posturing like jesus i'm interested in you but let's not forget i'm a really big i'm kind of a big deal <laughs> um is he trying to mitigate some of the risk he's taking with his peers? Like, Let's have Jesus over for dinner, but I'm going to isolate him by not offering him all the things that I normally would as a host. I'll give them to everybody else, but not Jesus, because I want to make sure everybody knows that I'm still somewhat skeptical about this guy, I want him over for dinner. I want to learn a little bit more about him. I'm interested. I'm intrigued. I've got some level of respect for this guy. He teaches amazingly. He does some amazing things. But let's not, let's not get the wrong idea here. We don't know what Simon's motives are. Luke doesn't tell us. But here's what Luke does tell us. A woman crashes the party. How did she get there? The only conclusion I can come up with is that word spread? Obviously, word spread because Luke says she heard Jesus was reclining at table at Simon's house. So word had spread that this was happening, and so did she show up with other people who were standing around outside the dinner, listening into the conversation. Let's see what the, what's going to happen. Jesus is at Simon's house. This is like you know Batman and Joker sitting down for dinner. Like what? What? Let's see what happens here. Is she standing out? intrigued and interested and is somehow able to slip in unnoticed? Did Simon notice her and decided not to say anything because he wanted to see how Jesus would react? How did she get in there? We don't know. All we know is she comes up behind Jesus. She's got a goal. She's got a plan. She hears that Jesus is reclining at table and she grabs a flask of ointment. That's the first thing she does. This flask, it would have had a long kind of skinny neck on it and a very small opening so that it would be very hard to spill it accidentally because these things are expensive, very expensive ointment we're talking about here. And so because it would have been hard to to spill it, a lot of times women would hang them around their neck and they would just walk around with it because the little hole in the opening would let the aroma out. And so as you went around, you smelled good. The other use for it was you could break it open and use it on your body. Now, why, why in the world would someone break it open and use it on their body, much less pour it out on somebody's feet? This would have been like a very comfortable luxury because this ointment, when it's poured on feet, it would soothe tired feet. Anybody use essential oils in here? Come on, raise your hand. Don't be shy. Oh, there's somebody... Pam's in the back going, yes, essential oils. I've imbibed in a little essential oil from time to time, I must say. (laughs) Similar, it would soothe tired feet. It would smooth calloused feet. And it would remove the odor of stinky feet. Not trying to be crude, but let's just remember... They didn't have cowboy boots and tennis shoes. They wore sandals everywhere and walked on dirty, dusty roads. Their feet were nasty. That's one of the reasons why when they reclined at table, the feet are not under the table. They're away from the table. You with me? That's how they're eating. So this would have been a very comfortable, nice, luxurious kind of thing to break open this oil and pour it on Jesus' feet. And that's her intention. She... Does she know Jesus? She has to. She has to have encountered him at some point. And who is she? Luke gives us two clues. She's a woman of the city, and she's a known sinner. You can do the math, right? She's a prostitute. And everybody knows it. She's a prostitute. But somehow, she's come across Jesus, encountered Jesus, he's interacted with her, or she's witnessed him in some way. Luke doesn't tell us, and, and we, it must not be that important for us to know. All Luke wants us to know is that this woman shows up in the house, she walks up behind Jesus, and she's got her flask, and she's got her plan. But her plan gets interrupted. Because before she can break open the flask, she stops, she pauses, she can't do it. She's suddenly overcome with emotion. She starts to weep. And this was not like a tear or two trickling down one cheek and the other. This was sobbing kind of crying such that her tears actually wet Jesus's feet. That might've been when he noticed her. Because she comes up behind him, and it's when her tears hit his feet, perhaps, that he looks up when he feels his feet getting wet. And perhaps, out of embarrassment at first, and in an effort to apologize, she lets down her hair. First century Jewish woman would not be caught dead in public with her hair down. She let down her hair and began to dry his feet, maybe apologetically. Oh, I'm sorry. I wet your feet with my tears. And she starts to wipe his feet with her hair. And then while she's there, still so overcome with emotion, she begins to kiss his feet. And then she breaks open the flask, pours it on his feet. How does that hit you? I'll be honest, it's awkward. Inappropriate even. At first, I mean, if I'd have been Jesus laying there on that table, and some woman walked in and let down her hair and started, I would have been like, "What are you doing?" Right? You know, sometimes Mary will try to reach over and pluck an eyebrow that's gone awry. You know, I I I turn into a ninja when that happens. Right? I mean, it's just like, don't do that. This is an incredible moment. She wets his feet, starts to wash them and wipe them. Simon starts to think to himself, I don't think he said this out loud. I think he maybe muffled it under his breath or he said it to himself in his head, but he's like, if Jesus were a prophet, he would not let this happen. He must not know who this woman is because if he did, he would put a stop to this, And Jesus either heard him talking under his breath or he perceived his thoughts. And he looks at Simon, and this is what he says, verse 41. He said, Simon, i got something to say to you. Say it, teacher. Verse 41, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. That's what forgiveness is. Just a little parenthesis. Forgiveness is canceled debt. It's like canceled debt. Okay? When we forgive someone, do we always feel it? And a lot of times people think, well, I can't forgive because I don't feel it. It's not true. The Bible says forgive as you've been. As your debt has been canceled, you cancel the debts people owe you. Right? On that basis, you cancel debts this way. That's how it works, people. It's not an emotion. Forgiveness is not an emotion. Emotions will follow as you walk in biblical forgiveness depending on the spirit. Close parentheses. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. What's the simple point of the parable? The larger the debt canceled, the greater the love, gratitude, and appreciation, right? That's that's the simple point of the parables, that the one who had 10 times more debt canceled is going to be 10 times more grateful, thankful, and affectionate towards this moneylender, and Simon's a smart guy. Simon knows the simple point of the parable. And Simon is also smart enough to probably anticipate where Jesus is going with this. Because he says, I suppose the one who had the larger debt. That Greek word's interesting. Is it, it literally means to take up or bear. Literally, Simon is saying, I take it, Jesus. I guess where you're going with this, Jesus, is the one who has the larger debt is going to have larger love towards this moneylender. You're right, Simon, verse 44. Then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, this is amazing. He's now moved his gaze away from Simon and he's looking at this woman and he's still talking to Simon. He's turned the whole dinner party's attention to her, a prostitute who crashed the banquet. Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. This isn't a rebuke from Jesus, though I don't think it's a harsh one. I don't think he's mad at Simon. But I think this, what he says right here, had to have been shocking and embarrassing for Simon because all the ways in which he has failed as a host, this woman has fulfilled. All the ways in which he failed to welcome Jesus into his own house, this prostitute has come in and filled in every gap. It's amazing. She's done what Simon failed to do. And here's what I believe. Even if Simon had done these things, if he had given Jesus water for his feet, if he had greeted Jesus with a kiss, and if he had given him ointment, it would not have been out of overwhelming gratitude and affection to Jesus. It would have been out of obligation and duty. Maybe not lacking in some level of kindness and generosity, but it wouldn't have been like this woman. This woman walks in. She's intending to break open the flask on Jesus of ointment, and she's so overcome with emotion and gratitude that she starts to weep and wipe his feet and kiss his feet, and then she pours it on his feet. She's so overcome that she begins to pour out affection and adoration. She has apparently come to the place where she is so caught up with who Jesus is to her that she can't help but express it. Why? Jesus helps us. Verse 47. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Let me point out what Jesus is not saying. He's not saying that Simon had little sin compared to her big sin. He's not doing a compare and contrast game with Simon and this known sinner woman, probably a prostitute. That's not what he's doing. He's not categorizing sin. That's not the point. I don't think all sin is created equal in terms of its consequences, but that's not what Jesus is focused on here. He's also not saying that this woman's affection for him is what gave rise to her forgiveness. Quite the opposite, right? Quite the opposite. And this is so important. This is a fundamental gospel understanding right here. It's not affection for Jesus that gives rise to forgiveness, it's his forgiveness of our sin that gives rise to our affection for him. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is this is the one of the major threads of the gospel is that it's not our performance that determines God's verdict over our lives. It's God's verdict that then gives rise to our performance. We are justified by his grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. We're made new. We're forgiven. Our sins are washed away. We're cleansed. We're made white as snow. And it's out of that, when you come to that realization, regardless of how humanity might categorize your sin, that it gives rise to this affection that we lift our hands and our voices and we sing, oh, praise the name. We I love the opening line of that song. I cast my mind not to my good deeds, not to my good works, not to the things that I've done that undid the bad things I did. I cast my mind to Calvary, where Jesus bled and died for me in my place, exhausted the wrath of God that I deserved. She loves much because she's been forgiven much. Ergo the parable. Ergo the tense of the Greek word, it should be translated, have been forgiven. Her sins have been forgiven. It's in the perfect tense. I don't want to bore you with a bunch of Greek, but the perfect tense means it's a past event that has a lasting and enduring effect. The forgiveness of your sins by Jesus has a lasting and enduring effect that in it manifests in many ways, not the least of which is overwhelming affection for Jesus. At some point, I wish I knew the backstory. Don't you want to know the backstory on this woman? I'm gonna have a little conversation with Luke when I get to heaven about that. Luke, you're pretty detailed, but we could have used a little bit more here. What happened to her? Where did she meet Jesus? What did he say to her? What did he do for her? We don't know. That's not what we're supposed to focus on. All we know is that at some point she encountered Jesus, and she was wholly given over to him. wholly given over this Jesus. So much so that her plan got interrupted with tears. Now, why why is Luke telling us this? Why, Why is it structured this way? Think about chapter seven for just a minute. Chapter seven begins and it ends with two unlikely people who have great faith. A centurion, he's a Roman law enforcement officer, the chief of police. Rome has lots of gods. Somehow he's come to know this Jesus, and in some sense, in some kind of way, he's wholly given over to him in the sense that he trusts him enough You don't even have to come in my house. I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof, but if you just say the word, my servant will be healed. And then chapter seven ends with another unlikely figure, but great faith. She's a woman of the street. She is a known sinner. People avoid her. She looks good. She might even be well-dressed. She's obviously got enough resource to buy a flask of ointment that's very expensive. So she doesn't, she doesn't, I don't think she's walking around town in rags. I don't think she's someone you would look at and just go, oh, pitiful. She probably looks good. She probably looks well-dressed. But she's a known sinner. Appearances might be deceiving here. She's nice and neat on the outside, but she's unclean on the inside. And somehow, in some way, she has come to the point where she's wholly given over to Jesus. She's got no business being in the house of a Pharisee, a religious holy man who's invited Jesus over for dinner. She's got no business being here, and yet Jesus looks at her. Look at the last thing he says to her, verse 50. And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. She's wholly given over to him. So Luke bookends chapter seven with two, the most unlikely people to have great faith. Abandonment to Jesus, wholly given over to Jesus. And what have we got in the middle? John the Baptist stumbling. John the Baptist, stumbling, offended. Knows who Jesus Jesus is, but he is entirely dissatisfied and frustrated with how his life's turned out. And so he says, are you the one, cousin? Yeah, I know I said, behold the Lamb of God when you were coming down to the river to be baptized. I know I prophesied that you were coming and I wasn't worthy to untie your sandals. I pronounced that you were going to inundate people with the Holy Spirit. I said that you must increase and I must decrease. But this is not not how it's supposed to go. So are you the one? And then we've also got Simon. Simon. The Pharisees, religious elite, knows the Old Testament better than I ever even thought about knowing it. The holy man. He's moral. He's a gatekeeper. People get out of his way. He throws a dinner party and people want to stand outside and listen. But he's stumbling. He's intrigued. He's interested maybe even has some level of respect. But he's still not sure what to do with this Jesus. He's keeping him at arm's length. Now, can I I give you a little bit of my sanctified imagination? I think I'm wholly convinced that John repented and was wholly given over to Jesus before Herod chopped his head off. Simon, I think Simon became a Christ follower. I can't prove it, okay? So I'm taking, we're not expositing right now. Bradley's giving you his opinion, okay? Luke does not name the centurion. He does not name the widow whose son Jesus raised from the dead. Remember, Luke is writing to Theophilus And he names Simon. Pharisees and scribes are mentioned all the time through Luke's gospel, just in general. A Pharisee came to him, or Pharisees were there. Pharisees and scribes, he names this guy. Probably because Theophilus knew who he was. And the Bible does tell us that many Pharisees converted and began to follow Christ. I think Simon was among them. But at this point, he's stumbling, he's keeping Jesus at arm's length. John is stumbling. But on the beginning and end of the chapter, these unlikely people with great faith. Now let me ask you, the centurion and this sinful woman, did they have all their questions answered? Were they fully convinced and fully understanding of what What it meant that the kingdom of God had come through this guy Jesus? Were all their doubts, all their questions dealt with? No. There's no way to conclude that they were. But were they wholly given over to him? Yes. See, the essence of the Christian life is not a message. The essence of the Christian life is not an idea. It's not a set of ethics. It's not even about us just trying to be some sort of counterculture. That happens. The essence of the Christian life is being wholly given over to this person. His name is Jesus. And you, you might not have all your questions answered you might not fully understand the gospel. You might, not, you might not be able to connect all the dots. People ask you questions that you don't have the answers to, and it causes doubt, fear, maybe, to rise up in your mind. or you going through something that's caused doubt and fear to rise up in your mind? Listen, having great faith doesn't mean that you've filled in every blank, Theologically speaking. What it means is you're simply in this posture of I don't have all the answers, but Jesus, I'm yours. Here's, here's my oil, here's my hair, here's my tears, here's here's all of me. I don't deserve it. Sinful person. I've done a lot of bad. I'm an unlikely candidate to be a righteous man, a righteous woman. You know, if that kind of stuff's coming out of your mouth and there's even a hint in you of finishing that sentence with, yeah, but Jesus, I would say he's found you. I'm not worthy. I don't know. I can't answer all but Jesus. You make the darkness tremble. Jesus, you forgive my, You canceled my debt. Here's all of me. There's a lot I don't understand, but that's true about you. That's enough. And then we take his hand and we, we follow him. That's the Christian life. Trust him. If you're not wholly given over to him, Repent. That's not I'm sorry. It's change your thinking. Change my thinking about what, Bradley? Change your thinking that what he wants or expects from you is to logically reason your way to him. What he wants is, will you trust me? Will you follow me? Will you you risk with me? And then he fills in the blanks. Amen? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, um, what what an amazing journey it's been just through chapter 7 of Luke. Jesus, we we have witnessed you do amazing things. And now we're coming to understand a little bit better at this point in this gospel what it means to have faith. It's not just marginal confidence in you that you might guide us or provide for us. It's, it's not even sort of a sense of relief that we could find forgiveness in you. It's, it's, it's being wholly given over to you because of who you are. And if we could see that, if we could understand that, it might, it might change everything about the way we live. I don't want to be like at least where Simon is right now. I don't want to be like that. I don't want, to, I don't want, to, I don't want my worship to just be out of obligation. That's what I'm supposed to do. I want, I want to be like this woman who, who poured out such gratitude and affection to you. I want to be like the centurion who certainly did not have all the answers, but trusted your word completely. Lead us to that place, and we thank you in Jesus' name. And everyone said amen. Amen. We hope that the Lord has blessed you through today's message, and we would love to hear from you. Tell us how God is working in your life and how we can pray for you. You can also help us reach others by investing at resfaith.com slash give. Thanks again for joining us.